Today's scripture lesson comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. This is the word of God. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, en- and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again here to NCF, and especially welcome those of you who are visiting us for the first time. My name is John. I am, hold on. (coughs) I learned a lesson from Andrew. Thank you. Uh, I I was about to do something very similar just now. So uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. And especially if this is your first time here with us, what a glorious day it is. This is now the first Sunday of June, making it now the official process in which we begin into the summer season where we take things down a notch and recover from the pent-up exhaustion that we built up for ourselves in the fall, winter, and spring. And during times like these where we take a collective decision to slow down, it is to our advantage to take some time reflecting ruminating on certain things that typically we don't give ourselves time to do. And today, that's what I would like to do on this day. As we take a break from our series that we've been going through, which is the parables of Jesus, I want us to reflect on a topic that we hardly reflect on, and yet in my estimation, is something that we need to reflect on constantly, and that is the topic of ambition. I would like to share with you today what the Bible has to say about this thing called ambition. And so with that in mind, let's prepare our hearts and our minds by going before God, asking for him to prepare us to hear his word today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would speak to us after living in these past six days, confronted with the trials and temptations that we must, as well as being confronted with the sin that we have to deal with from other people. We ask now that you would quiet our hearts so that we could hear clearly, Lord, whatever static that we may have brought through these doors, whatever anxieties that weigh our hearts down, we pray that you would banish those thoughts, that we would close our spiritual eyes to them, even now as our physical eyes are closed, so that we can focus, so that we can receive, so that we can be blessed by what it is you want us to learn from your word today. Oh Lord, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. Now, It goes without saying that New Yorkers are arguably the most ambitious people in this country, maybe even the most ambitious people in the whole world. You know, in most cities, the only time you'll ever see a massive crowd going in and out of it is during the confined hours of the typical rush hour times. But here in this city, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't even matter what day it is. Every time you go into the city, it just seems to be saturated with people always on the go, always going to their next appointment, to their next meeting to their next job. Hustle and bustle is what we are here 
in New York. And one of the things that you pick up as you go into the city and you just sense the vibrancy, the drive, the ambition that people have, you kind of get this sense of a law that's being proclaimed to us, its citizens. And that law is, if you want to live in this place, and if you want to survive, you better be ambitious. And if you're not, you better get out of the way. Otherwise, you will suffer severe consequences. That seems to be the law that is constantly being preached at us every time we live here, right? Case in point, back in 2014, the New York Times came out with an interesting article about the growing epidemic, the growing issue epidemic of panhandling. The article described how back in 2013, that year, the NYPD made about 90 arrests in panhandlers. The following year, in 2014, it skyrocketed up to 274 arrests. You know, when I read that article those years ago, it kind of confirmed to me my suspicions. And that is this city is always telling us that if you do not live out an ambitious life and if you get in the way of other people's ambitious, you will suffer consequences, literally. But conversely, it also seems to be saying that if you strive to be ambitious and if you feed into the ambitions of others, you will be greatly rewarded. Now, all of you in here are New Yorkers. Most of you in here are Christian. The question that I want to pose this morning is, you are given the expectation as New Yorkers to be ambitious. But what about when it comes to your Christian faith? In other words, is it okay for Christians to be ambitious as they are in their day-to-day living as New Yorkers? Is it okay for followers of Jesus to be ambitious when it comes to their devotion and following of God? Well, depending on who you ask within the church, they'll give you two different answers because believe it or not, many Christians are divided on this very issue. Some Christians would say, no way, absolutely not. Christians should never be ambitious people, especially when it comes to their faith. And the reason why these people would argue is for the same reasons why they would look down on the ambitions of a typical New Yorker. Ambition is driven by greed, by power over a desire to conquer other people. But then you have other Christians within the church who say, no, 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 wait a minute. Of course, Christians should be ambitious. Of course, they should be driven. Because after all, consider the opposite of what an ambitious person is. A lazy, you know, unmotivated person, someone who's complacent, someone who doesn't do anything at all and just mooches off of other people. Oh, no, no. Followers of Jesus must be committed. They must be devoted. They must be driven to live faithfully to God. What say you, NCF? What do you think? Should Christians be ambitious like they are in their careers here in this city, or should they not? Well, that's the question that the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us as we take a look at this very familiar passage in Philippians chapter 3. And here's what's going to be so interesting, maybe frustrating. On the one hand, he's going to say, absolutely, Christians should be ambitious. But then on the other hand, he's going to say, no, 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 don't ever be ambitious. Sound confusing? Hang in there because he's going to untangle that for us in just a moment. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning as it pertains to ambition. Number one, why ambition is a good thing. Why ambition is a good thing. Number two, why ambition can be a bad thing. And finally, how to get the good ambition. Okay, Why it's good, why it can be bad, and how to get the good one. All right, let's jump right in. First, why ambition is a good thing. Now, if you grew up going to church, then no doubt in the typical Sunday school lessons that you learn, 
you've probably most likely been taught that ambition in and of itself is evil, it's sinful, it's wrong, it's ungodly. And to validate this idea, you might hear passages of scripture such as the following, Galatians chapter 5, starting in 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, you have Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others more or above yourself. Now, just from a surface reading of these two verses, you kind of get a clear statement of this anti-ambitious idea that seems to be running throughout the Bible. Right? Especially from the letters of Paul. And because this is so, so many Christians come to the definitive conclusion that being an ambitious person, being an ambitious Christian, is an oxymoron. It shouldn't be. One pastor by the name of Dave Harvey really emphasizes this idea when he writes this in his book, quote, uh, <clears throat> ambition has mostly hovered outside respectability. For church leaders from Augustine to Jonathan Edwards, ambition was synonymous with the love of earthly honor, vainglory, fame hunting, pretty slimy stuff. So it seems like an open and shut case, does it not? If you are a follower of Jesus, you can't be ambitious. And conversely, if you are ambitious, you can't be a genuine follower of Jesus. But take another look. And while Paul says in our passage, specifically in verses 12 to 13, let's read it again. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, Clearly from just these two statements, it's obvious that we see Paul portraying himself as a very, very ambitious person. I mean, if you read these two verses to a person who has never read the Bible, doesn't know the meaning of the Bible or the teachings of the Bible, they would most likely assume that you're talking about a very ambitious New Yorker. Why? Just because of the way that it's written. It gives off the classic description of what an ambitious person is like. They're driven. They're hungry. They're motivated. They're chasing after something, right? And here's the thing. If you read what Paul says carefully in verse 13, not only does he tell us that he is ambitious, but he tells us why he thinks it's a good thing. One more time, it reads, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You see that phrase, what lies behind? In the original Greek language in which this letter was written, it's actually one word, opizo, opizo. Literally, it translates as the past. So what Paul is really saying is forgetting the past. In fact, that's how the New Living Translation translates verse 13, where it says, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And it's here, with this in mind, we begin to understand why Paul says ambitiousness or ambition is a good thing. Why is ambition such a good thing? He tells us. Because it allows you to forget the past. Let me explain what I mean. Psychologists tell us that the past can harm people in one of two ways. People can live constantly regretting the past to where they're haunted by it, or they're always yearning for the past. Okay, let's quickly go through them. 
first reason people are haunted by the past. One of the things that disable a person from being able to live a normal life is because of some event that happened to them in their past, typically a terrible thing, either a terrible thing that happened to them. Maybe they were abused as a child. Maybe their spouse left them. Maybe, God forbid, one of their children passed away, or it's something terrible they did to somebody else. Maybe you know, they abused one of their kids. Maybe they left their spouse. Maybe they neglected an aging parent. And now that parent is gone to where they can never express their regret and love. Whatever the case may be, this person cannot move on with their life because they're constantly haunted by their past. In many ways, these people are kind of like cars that are broken because their gear shift is stuck in reverse. Instead of moving forward, which is the typical normal direction that a car should go primarily, it's always going in reverse. And that's a person like this, a person who always goes back, always revisits, always relives the things in life that are constantly regretted or filled with shame or guilt of to where it just keeps recycling over and over and over again to where they feel so overwhelmed. Psychologist by the name of Robert McGee, Dr. Robert McGee explains how this can be so devastating to a person. He writes this, quote, too often our self-image rests solely on an evaluation of our past, being measured only through a memory. Day after day, year after year, we tend to build our personalities on the rubbles of yesterday's personal disappointments and failures. And as a result, we believe the lie, I am what I am, I cannot change, I am forever hopeless. Because so many people today are haunted by their past, they have no drive to move forward in life. And in the meanwhile, everyone around them seems to be moving on. Everyone around them seems to be moving forward. And all of a sudden, they seem like they've been left behind. So that's the first reason on how the past can harm person. But then there's a second reason, psychologists tell us, of how the past can hurt you. And that is yearning for the past. This is kind of known as the glory days issue, right? People who struggle with this think that the best days of their life are now far behind them. All the greatest things that life had to offer to them, they already experienced, and then they now moved on, and all those glory days are now behind. And so what do these people do? They're always trying to relive the past, watching old videos, looking at old photos, hanging out with people who were there with you during that time. But what usually happens in this case is people like this tend to isolate themselves. They corner themselves off in some hidden part of the earth, always depressed, always ruminating of how my life used to be so great, but now it sucks so much, right? And as a result, people who think like this fall into this spiral despair of depression because they feel like they have nothing left to look forward to. You know, back in the 1980s, it was a very popular song that really captured this problem, this sad, pathetic condition that so many struggle with. It was sung by New Jersey native Eddie Money. Any Eddie Money fans here? So you're like, who is Eddie Money, right? Eddie Money, come on. He came out with this song called I Want to Go Back. Do you remember that song? You know, oh, gosh. Let me read to you an opening, the opening lyrics of this song just so that you can see because it perfectly captures kind of the sad, bittersweet, pathetic condition of this attitude. It says this, I was listening to the radio. I heard a song reminded me of long ago. Back then, I thought that things were never going to change. It used to be that I never had to feel the pain. I know that things will never be the same now. I want to go back and do it all over again, but I can't go back, I know. I want to go back because I'm feeling so much older. But I can't go back, I know. 
when people feel that the best moments and the best experiences and the best parts of life are already far behind them, they too have no drive to move forward in life because they have nothing in their minds, nothing to look forward to, nothing to be excited about. And so they kind of stay in this baseline existence where they're kind of like walking zombies and all they do is just survive for the moment, just survive for the day. And usually what this usually translates to practically is that the older they get, the more meaner, the more bitter, the more angry they get at life because it further distanced them away from those wonderful, glorious days that made their life feel so full of purpose, so full of joy. So when you see all of these two ideas, right, now you begin to understand why Paul says ambition is a good thing because by focusing on the future, which is what he's implying in verse 12 when he says, not that I've already obtained it, this, but I'm already, or I'm already perfect. What is he saying there? He's saying that when you are ambitious, you're not focused on the past. No, ambition causes you to look forward to the future with hope. See, and that right there, according to Paul, is why ambition is a good thing. Because ambition by nature wires you to look forward to the future, to look forward with hopeful demeanor. And Paul would say, that is how God's people are to be. If there is any characteristic that should distinguish Christians from the rest of any other person walking on this earth, is that we are to be hopeful people. We are to be excited with what is to come. We are to believe that the best has not yet happened. And therefore, we're giddy. We're joyful. We're filled with anticipation. That should be the mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And therefore, Paul says, be ambitious, which is another way of saying, be hopeful. Now, with that said, however, Paul does in his next breath say, but be careful. In your attempts to cultivate ambition, be sure that you're not going down the road of kind of ambition that is actually very bad, very toxic, both for you and to the people around you. Because as he's going to show us in just a moment, ambition can go the wrong route. It can make the wrong turn and lead you to a direction to where you become a source of misery and a source of misery for others. How? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, why ambition can be a bad thing. Read again the beginning of verse 12, where Paul again writes, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, to understand what he's saying in this verse, you have to know a little bit of the backstory behind why he wrote these words. During this time, there was a lot of false teaching circulating in Christian communities. And there was one specific false teaching that was circulating in the city of Philippi. It was a teaching that said that a person is capable of becoming morally sinless or morally perfect. There was this teaching, this heretical teaching going around among certain Christian circles in the city of Philippi that as a follower of Jesus, you would be capable of being morally pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless. Now, here's the thing. If there was anyone who could come close into making such a claim about themselves, it would be Paul, the Apostle Paul. Because he kind of alludes that at one point in his life, he was just like this, that he lived out this false teaching, that he he believed this about himself. In verse 3 of this very chapter, it says this. 
He writes, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisee who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. If there was anyone who could claim that they arrived spiritually, that they were the exemplar of moral and spiritual and righteous perfection, it would have been him. And yet, go back to verse 12, listen again to what he says there. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. What's going on here, Paul? He starts off in verse three by saying, I was pretty much perfect or right about there. But then when he gets to verse 12, look, I am far from perfect. I'm nowhere near perfect. What's going on? Why are you saying one thing and then the complete opposite? What caused this transition? Well, it's simple, really. Paul, again, remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach the Philippians that they need to be ambitious. But he wants to make sure that the thing that drives our ambition is not this notion, this assumption that you're capable of being a perfect person person that you're able to arrive that you're able to be the person who's reached the top of the pinnacle of spiritual perfection okay you see there are certain kinds of ambitious people out there who are driven not because of the hope they have in the future but because of a hope they have in themselves let me say that again there are certain ambitious people out there to whom their ambition is driven not for a hope in the future but a hope that they have in themselves and what exactly are they hoping in about themselves They have hope in themselves, in the idea, in the ridiculous idea that my own strength, my own abilities, my own competence is able to make me perfect. I am able to arrive where no one else can. I am able to achieve what no one else cannot. I am able to be Mr. Perfect, Miss Perfect, right? That kind of false assumption about how people view themselves drives their ambition for so Many, this is why Paul says what he does in verse 12, because he wants to make sure that as we try to cultivate the kind of ambition he's encouraging us to do in our passage, that we don't cultivate it with this ridiculous false assumption about a self-deluded view of yourself that you could be self-perfected on your own strength. You know why? Because he himself knows of the dangerous consequences of what happens when your ambition is being fueled that way. He tells us the consequence in verse six of that verse that we just had up. Listen to what he said there. What did he do? Verse six. Yeah. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Here we see why ambition can be a bad thing. When your ambition is driven, not for a hope for your future, but a hope for yourself, a deluded hope in yourself, it will cause you to feel justified in looking down on those to the point of judging them, criticizing them, maybe even downright persecuting them because you think they are not as perfect as you. They're nowhere near as arrived as you are, or maybe they're not even capable of being that way. And as a result, you feel warranted, you feel okay, you feel justified in looking down on them, of being judgmental towards them, maybe even harming them because you think you have the right 
to do so. In other words, sinful ambition, the wrong kind of ambition, could actually handicap you from being compassionate and being generous and kind to people who need your compassion and generosity the most. In other words, if you cultivate the kind of ambition that's driven by a hope in yourself and not a hope in the future, you can actually become a person to where instead of your perfections become a source of benefits to other people, it becomes a curse to them. Because you use your perfection as a weapon to harm them, to humiliate them, to discredit them. Going back to that panhandling issue uh, that I opened my sermon with a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal was written, <clears throat> had a written op-ed by a woman where she kind of described her struggle with this whole growing problem of panhandling in the city. And I want you to take a listen to how she processed it because it really exemplifies what I'm talking about here. This, this is what she wrote, quote, Panhandlers make me crazy. Here I am, the owner of several fuzzy cardigan sweaters, a proud brownstone Brooklynite, a lady who will trap a spider and let it go outside rather than squash it. But when it comes to the homeless, I'm suddenly Mary Antoinette. It's not just that I refuse to give money. When a panhandler shuffles through the subway car, rattling his cup, I find myself delivering an imaginary but triumphant lecture, explaining why I deserve the right to enjoy my commute free of his colorful tale of PTSD, locust plagues, and five babies at home. Clearly, there is something wrong with me. You know what I find so interesting? I find it interesting that she begins talking about her qualifications. I have a brownstone in Brooklyn. I own cardigan sweaters, blah, 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 blah. Kind of eerily similar to how Paul qualifies himself in verses three, right? I'm a house of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I've obeyed the law perfectly, right? And you know what else these two have in common? The vitriol, the judgment, the condemnation that Paul had towards Christians at one point in his life, this woman has with panhandlers, right? Homeless people who need generosity, who needs care, who need kindness, but instead, judgment, condemnation, anger, no mercy, no grace. Clearly, there is a kind of ambition that is downright wrong for the world, and it makes you into a monster. A kind of ambition that if you're not careful, will not contribute to the flourishing of a city, but will actually cause the city to fall into civil disarray and misery. And the question that I have to ask of you is, how do you make sure that as you follow Jesus to where you're called to cultivate ambition, how do you make sure that you don't cultivate this kind of ambition? The answer leads me to my final point, how to get the good ambition. Read again verse 14 of our passage. Paul continues, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul tells us exactly how we can cultivate the good kind of ambition and therefore avoid the bad kind of ambition. And he says it in a way that's so odd. He says it right here in the middle of this verse. The way you get this good ambition is what he calls through the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What in the world is that? What does that even mean? Well, <clears throat> let me see if I can use a wedding illustration just to give you an idea, just because I think that's the best concrete illustration I can give. You know, <clears throat> most of us in here have uh, attended a wedding at least, right? <clears throat> and when you're at a wedding, 
right? Usually when the bride is walking down the aisle, she's usually looking in one direction, isn't she not? What direction is she looking in? Is she looking to her sides, the left, right, admiring the decorations, the flowers, the banners? No. Is she looking down behind her, you know, seeing all the people who are, you know, sitting in the back rows? No. Usually, in most cases, the bride is looking forward and up, right? Forward and up because up on that stage is that person that is driving her forward the person she's ambitious to have, the person whom she's looking forward to spending the rest of her life with till the day she dies, right? What is that? That is the upward call of the bride to the bridegroom, right? That is what Paul is speaking of here in verse 14. In a sense, what Paul is saying here is that the only way you can have an ambition that will free you from the past, the only way you can have an ambition that will be generous and kind and merciful is if it is driven by centering your life on the one who you will spend all of eternity with, the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. But the only way you can even have this upward call is by believing the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God, who is the only true perfect being of all, right, who has every right to look down and judge you and criticize you and condemn you and just spit you out and show no mercy. Instead, he responds with kindness. He responds with grace. How? By becoming a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could suffer the full penalty of all your sins, so that he could substitute himself on your behalf so that you could be freed from his wrath, so that you could have the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might not fully understand what I'm saying. So let me kind of break it down a little bit more. You see, the Bible teaches us that God, your creator, loved you so much, even though you are a sinner, even though you're worthy of being punished for all eternity, he became Jesus Christ so that he could pay the full penalty. He could take the full brunt of the punishment you deserve for all your sins, including those past sins that constantly haunt you, those regrets, those miseries, those frustrations that constantly weigh you down with guilt and shame. He paid for all of those sins, and not only those sins, but your current sins that you're still struggling with, as well as the future sins you haven't even sinned yet. He does all of that because one of the benefits of Jesus' work on the cross is full pardon, full forgiveness of sin. But you know what? That's not all. Because another thing that comes out of this forgiveness of sin is that God therefore gives you the right. He qualifies you to receive the joy, the prize of eternal life. Eternal life where you get to spend glorious days forever and ever with him and you together for all eternity right glory days that far exceed whatever glory days that you think have already passed your life jesus is saying i will make sure that through my work on the cross you will have the most glorious days that no glory days on earth could even compare to that is what he's saying that is what the gospel teaches us in other words jesus secured for us on the cross the prize of heaven Eternal life with God. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, great. Here it goes again. Heaven. Pastor, can I be honest? Heaven sounds a little abstract. It sounds so obscure. 
It's not concrete enough. How, how can I get excited about something that I can't really visualize in my head? How can I really be excited about a place that just sounds so weird? It's like, it's like getting excited about some fairy world across the universe. Like, what is this place, right? Well, maybe that's your problem. Maybe your narrow demand for concreteness is why you can't really get excited about heaven. I mean, has it ever dawned to you that the reason why it's so hard to use earthly analogies to capture the excitement of heaven, to kind of piggyback off of it, to get you excited about heaven, is because that no earthly thing can even fully grasp how awesome and how glorious heaven is? Has it ever dawned on you that maybe that is why heaven is so hard to grasp? Not because heaven itself is boring, but because earth is boring compared to heaven. How can something boring be used as an analogy to excite you about something that's great? But that doesn't mean, however, that the excitement of heaven is beyond this. Oh, no, no. Because I do believe that the Bible is enough to inspire our imagination in such a way to where we can have genuine excitement for heaven to come. In fact, let me read you one pastor's attempt to describe it because I think he passes with flying colors. And I apologize. It's a very long passage. But I think it's important that we hear all of it. Mark Buchanan up in Canada writes this. We are born with two impulses. These jostle each other from womb to grave. They make us constantly restless, anxious, weary, and cranky. The first impulse is to go beyond, to capture some virgin newness, some pristine creation, to fling out why to the horizon, make a stomach-fluttering leap into the unknown. We crave discovery, the quest, adventure to find that which has never yet been seen. This impulse often atrophies into escapism and addiction. The second impulse is to go home. It is to recapture some unspoiled origins, to dig back to the hard bedrock, curled back into the womb. We long for the way that things were. We seek safety, domesticity, serenity, to find again that what we've lost. This impulse often calcifies into being stuck in the past, to go beyond, to go home. Philosophers and psychiatrists diagnose these opposing impulses as, on the one hand, the desire for self-transcendence, to get past the familiar, the habitual, to break out of being who we are. We're bored with ourselves and want to get outside of ourselves. We want to escape and go beyond. On the other hand, these contrary impulses represent a desire for self-fulfillment, to connect again with who we truly are. We're in exile from ourselves and long to return. We're estranged from ourselves and want to be rejoined. We want to go home. On earth, not only do these impulses war against one another, but neither impulse is ever satisfied. Why won't we be bored in heaven? Because it's the one place where both impulses to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfying. It's the one place where we're constantly discovering where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is as good as the pursuing of it. And yet where we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be and where we find that mysterious something we never found down here. All that has held us back here on earth, the weariness, the fear, the dullness, the brevity, the poverty vanishes and this lifelong melancholy that hangs on us this wishing we were someone else somewhere else vanishes too our craving to go beyond is always and fully realized our yearning for home is once and for all fulfilled the ah of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss what will that be like we can only guess no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind has conceived what god has prepared for those who love him heaven will be surpassingly abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. What is the gospel? The gospel is the hope of the bride, the church who is inspired by the hope of the future that they're going to have with their bridegroom, 
for all eternity so that they can let go of the past because they know they have been forgiven. NCF, let me ask you, do you have that ambition? Do you have that hope for the future, right? Even if it's a vague future. I mean, when you were single, or for those of you who are still single, you kind of get a taste of it now. You remember what it was like when you were single, wishing, oh, will I one day be with somebody? Will I ever be married to this person, right? Haven't you ever felt excited about something that was abstract, something that didn't exist, and yet you yearned for it, right? This is supposed to be so much greater. This is supposed to be so much powerful and more glorious than that. That is what the gospel teaches us. Do you understand that? If you do, then you begin your journey of ambition. Because here's the thing, the more you get excited about one day being with this love of your life for all eternity, the more you start wanting to be more like him. And the more you are like him, the more your ambition reflects his ambition, where it's filled with kindness and not cruelty, with grace and not law, right? With mercy and not judgment. And as a result, your ambition becomes a source of blessing to those around you. Let me ask you, are you ambitious, NCF? Is this the characteristic of the ambition that drives you to wake up every morning and to live life to the fullest so that you can live out the joy that you are hoping for in what is to come? I want to end my message with some practical next steps for you to think about. Something that I hope will practically help you to cultivate this ambitious life that you're called to live, right? And it starts with the first. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and today's message really kind of motivated you and inspired you to say, I want that. I want to have that joyful hope of what is to come. I want to overcome this dread of the past and and get over the regret. I want to stop feeling like the best days have already passed me. I want what you are having, Pastor John. Then I invite you to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Recognize your need for him by asking for his forgiveness and make him the Lord of your life and live your life for his so that as you live your life for his, your life becomes a tremendous blessing to those around you. And please come talk to me and Pastor James afterwards. We will help you get on your way in your journey with Christ. Number two, read a solid book on heaven. I feel like so many Christians, we know so much about the Christian faith, but we don't know much about the foundation of what drives us to live such hopeful lives. I would like for you guys to read more. You notice I've been asking you to read more lately, right? Get off the video games, get off Facebook and start reading, right? Two books that I would recommend on heaven. Number one, The Saints Everlasting Rest by the great Puritan Richard Baxter. This is written in a little bit of archaic English, but I tell you, you can get over it in about 15 minutes if you keep reading. And if you read through that book, it will change your life. I promise you, it will change your life. Second book, Things Unseen by Mark Buchanan, the guy I just quoted, that long quote. Another great book on heaven, not as doctrinal as Baxter's, but just as powerful and moving, right? Pick up a copy and start reading. Number three, identify any sinful ambitions governing your life right now. Is there anything in my life, whether it's an accomplishment, status, et cetera, that I use to justify my criticisms or judgments of others? Or are there any things that I'm pursuing full heartedly because I don't want to be criticized? I don't want to be judged by others, right? Is the fear of judgment, the fear of criticism driving me to work as hard as I am, right? Write that out. 
And as you do, move on to the fourth one. Write out this one. Identify any hindrance to cultivate godly ambition. What in my past am I constantly regretting over? What am I constantly thinking the best days have already done? You know, you, you're looking at those old 2004 pictures of yourself when you, you know, you, you were in shape and you had nice hair on your head, right? You don't want to look at these new pictures where you're 40 pounds overweight and you're balding in the back of your head, right? Stop doing that. Identify those things. And once you identify number three and four, you can move on to the fifth, which is share some of these things with your Oikos group members. Ask for prayer. Ask for accountability. And come up with brainstorming ways of how you can encourage each other in cultivating godly ambition. Maybe what you can do is read one of those two books together, right? And talk about it. Think about how you can apply what the book is saying. Or maybe you need to let go of the past by forgiving someone who hurt you. Or maybe you need to ask for their forgiveness. And you need someone in your Oikos group to support you, to encourage you, to help you be brave, to face that, right? Or maybe... Start serving others in the context of outward compassion. Volunteer as an oikos group to some need in the city. Because you know what? The gospel can sometimes be like a pill inside that you need to activate with activity, right? Sometimes the gospel will not come to life until you start applying it. So start doing some works of compassion. Start doing some work of kindness, especially to those who you have a tendency to criticize and look down upon so that the gospel that you know in your head will make its way down to your heart. Do these things and see how God will change you and us and through us, the community and the city that we live in. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we move forward in the call that you have given us, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, we pray that that would give us a vision, a hope of the future that will inspire us to be generous, to overcome the past, to not listen to the enemy who tries to condemn us of our past or to make us feel regret because the glory days are gone. No, Father, help us to see the glory days are yet to come and it'll be days that will never end for they are everlasting. Jesus We need you to help us to live in a city that is constantly molding us to be sinfully ambitious. Oh God, instead, let us mold this city. Let us mold it with an alternate ambition, the true kind of ambition that brings hope to this world, that brings true flourishing to the city. Oh God, I pray that as a church, we would really live this out and be a source of tremendous blessing. Oh God, would you make this true? Would you make it happen by the power of your spirit and through the knowledge of the word? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.